In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Hey, it's Jordan. This is another one of those special episodes that we're giving you a taste of while we're on break. The most popular podcast genre imaginable is true crime. And I'm only going to speak for myself here, but a lot of true crime is crap. A lot of it isn't well-researched. A lot of it is basically read from Wikipedia. A lot of it is played for laughs. This is not one of those shows. Tracking a Killer, an episode of which you're about to hear today, is produced and hosted by two experienced crime reporters from our sister stations, City News 680. These episodes delve deep into the past to find crimes around Toronto that gathered headlines but were never solved. Phil and Madison revisit these ice-cold cases with the urgency of the breaking news reporters that they are. It provides a new look at cases that would otherwise be forgotten, and it might even provide some new answers. In this episode, the Elizabeth Bain case. Have a listen. I hope you enjoy it. You can find the rest of the episodes by searching Tracking a Killer in your favorite podcast app or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. You know, we had been together two days before she went missing. I thought everything was fine. And two days later, she was gone. Police immediately began a, a large-scale investigation. Officers were confident enough to uh, declare this missing person as a homicide. Elizabeth's body has never been found. They didn't really leave much doubt in my mind that they were absolutely convinced that I had either killed Liz or that I knew what had happened to her. This is Tracking a Killer, The Cold Case Files. I'm Madison Fitzpatrick. And I'm Phil Martino. In this episode, we're going back over 30 years to the disappearance of a university student in Toronto's East End. 22-year-old Elizabeth Bain was a student at the University of Toronto's Scarborough campus when she vanished on June 19, 1990. Her vehicle was found three days later with blood inside. Her body has never been found. Police thought they had her killer several months into the investigation. Bain's boyfriend, Robert Baltovich, was convicted of her murder. He spent eight years behind bars before being deemed not guilty by the courts in 2008. Her homicide remains unsolved. Detective Steve Smith is with Toronto's Cold Case Unit, and he joins us to talk about this decades-old case. Elizabeth Bain was a 22-year-old university student living in the Scarborough area of Toronto um, in 1990. Um, by all accounts, she was uh, a fine young lady. She had a lot of friends. Uh, she was active in the community, active in sports within the University of Toronto campus, the Scarborough campus. And uh, she was going on with her life at the time. On Wednesday, June 20th, 1990, 
her mother phoned into the Toronto police to report that uh, Elizabeth hadn't shown up at home and that her mother had not seen her since about 4 p.m. on June 19, 1990. At that time, Elizabeth had told her mom that she was going to the university campus to see about uh, uh, some tennis schedules. Uh, that's the last her mother saw of her. Police immediately began a large-scale investigation that included a massive search through the Scarborough area of Toronto. They did not locate Elizabeth, but three days later, they did find her vehicle in a parking lot in the Morse Road and Kingston Road area of Scarborough. Forensic officers went through it and found a quantity of blood inside. Unfortunately, over the years, uh, Elizabeth's body has never been found. Um, and that's the biggest part of this case that uh, we're looking to solve at this point. So was there enough blood in the vehicle to show that she could not have survived? There was. With all this, the, all the events that had occurred at that time, officers were confident enough to uh, declare this missing person as a homicide. Um, it's very rare that they'll declare a homicide without actually having a body. But with the circumstances surrounded and the amount of blood that was in the vehicle, they were confident to say that she had met with foul play at this time. There wasn't a whole lot of forensic inform information in this case, mostly because her body was never found. Um, but just from the circumstances, the type of person she was, she wasn't the type of person that uh, would not be in contact with her family, with her friends, um, that was regularly disappearing, that would go away for days or weeks on end. Um, her family was, it was a very close-knit family, and they always knew where she was and what she was doing. She always stayed in contact, made sure everyone was aware of, of where she was, what she was doing. And she was a happy-go-lucky girl with a lot of friends. Uh, she was always out with her friends and involved in the sports community. So when nobody had heard from her for a number of days, combined with her vehicle being moved from the original spot where she had went um, at the U of T campus and found out in... Uh, in the east side of Scarborough with blood in it. Uh, the culmination of all the events led the officers to believe that uh, she had met with foul play. Elizabeth's boyfriend at the time was Rob Baltovich, and that's who police ended up charging with her murder. Rob Baltovich says they had the wrong guy. He shared his story with us. Well, I met Liz in the fall of 1987. We were both in the same developmental psychology class, and... She was someone who, it turns out, I'd actually seen before jogging in the area when I was working that previous summer, but I didn't realize that at first, and we just became friends. Obviously, I was very interested in her romantically. She's very attractive. She's very athletic. And uh, for a variety of reasons, you know, most of which involved the fact that she was in a relationship at the time, we never really began dating until about a year and a half later but it actually became quite serious by uh, the end of 1989. The relationship continued right up until the spring of 1990 when she went missing. You know, we were very much together, and, you know, we had been together two days before she went missing. I thought everything was fine, and two days later, she was gone. Can you describe the last time you saw her? Yeah, the last time I saw her, she was actually working that night at a group home, which wasn't too far away from where I live, Scarborough. And so I went to uh, visit her. I actually brought a movie along, and we watched that. And around 11 o'clock, um, she arranged to take one of her uh, uh, fellow employees home. I offered to 
take another one of her employees home, and we agreed to meet later that night at the Scarborough campus. And that's exactly what we did. And we parked our cars and we walked down into the valley, which anyone who is familiar with you know, the University of Toronto Scarborough campus knows exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, we spent a few hours together that night. Uh, we were intimate and we walked back to our cars. And uh, she was acting a little bit odd, I would say. I mean, we heard a, a rustle in, in the woods and she seemed quite scared, which that was unusual at the time because she was not the type of person to be concerned about things like that. But in any event, we parted on very good terms. She said, you have no idea how much I love you. And we kissed. And I said to her, well, you know, maybe I'll see you again on Tuesday. And she said, well, I'm planning on spending time with my friend Arlene on Tuesday, so I might not be able to see you. And I just said, okay, well, we'll hook up on Tuesday on the phone and we'll figure things out. And uh, that was certainly the last time I saw her in person. But I did speak to her on the telephone on the day that she went missing. Robert says he knew something unusual was going on when he spotted Elizabeth's car parked on Old Kingston Road on his way to the University of Scarborough campus the night she went missing. He says it was 15 minutes before her evening class was set to begin, and it was not in a place she would normally park her vehicle. I drove into the tennis courts, where ironically we had been the week before, and I looked for her there, and I didn't see her there either. And I just thought, well, you know what, maybe she just decided to go for a walk and she walked up to class, you know, from her car. It didn't seem likely to me because then she would have had to walk all the way back down. But that was when I basically resolved, okay, well, whatever the reason is for her car being here, uh, I certainly want to go to her class and make sure she made it. So I worked out until about 8.30, went to her class, waited outside her class, and uh, she didn't come out. And that's really the first moment that I thought, okay, something's not quite right here. Later that evening, Robert went back to where Elizabeth's car was parked, but it was gone. At this point, curiosity turned into worry. Robert went to Elizabeth's home and told her mother that she never showed up to class. In the back of my mind, I still thought there was a chance that she had arranged to get together with her friend Arlene. That's what she had told me earlier in the day when we spoke. Now, if she hadn't told me that, I would have been a lot more concerned. But I guess in the back of my mind, I just kept thinking, oh, I'm sure everything is all right. Maybe she just decided to blow off the class, that type of thing. He tells us it really wasn't until the next morning when he realized something was up. When the mother called me, sometime between 6 a.m. and 6.30 and asked me, you know, is Liz with you? I said, no. I said, and I was at your house last night telling you that she wasn't with me. She said, well, she didn't come home. And that's really the moment when I think we all realized, I certainly realized, okay, like something is seriously wrong here. When did the police first contact you? Well, in terms of speaking to the police, I mean, we spoke to the police as a group on the Wednesday morning around 8, 8 a.m. Uh, the first time that they asked me to come and answer questions was actually on the Thursday night. So now we're two days later. It's Thursday, June 21st, 1990. And I had actually been up at the campus that night canvassing various people that I thought might have seen Liz on campus that night. We were arranging to have flyers printed and 
I got back to his house, and that's when uh, Liz's mom told me that the police wanted, to, wanted me to come into questioning. So I ended up um, at 42 Division answering questions by about uh, 10 p.m. on the Thursday night, two days after she went missing. And when did you realize, hey, they're looking at me as a suspect? You know, it's interesting. Um, on the Saturday that we had a big search for Liz, I started thinking a little bit about the case, and, and I guess in my mind, I, I, I'd seen enough movies and television shows to know that normally the police would be looking at a boyfriend or a husband anyway. And I remember saying to a friend of mine, I said, you know, that this, I just had this kind of uneasy feeling that they might think I had something to do with this. And of course he said, like, Rob, you're crazy. Like, they'll never think that, and it's never going to you know, get to that point. But I guess just in the back of my mind, I thought, well, it might. So I wouldn't say I really thought that the police were looking at me, but I just thought that at some point they might. And then, of course, the next day, which was the Sunday, June 24th, we, we searched all day again. It was a rainy day when Elizabeth's car was found. And that night, Robert was called in for questioning. It was two homicide detectives. And, you know, the first thing they said to me is that we were, have been called in because a quantity of blood was found in Liz's car. It was the first time I had heard it. I was kind of in dates. I mean, when they told me that, I didn't even know how to react. But I would say probably within an hour and a half being questioned, that's when I realized, like, oh my God, these guys really think I did this. And and when I say think, I mean, that's probably understating it. I mean, they, they didn't really leave much doubt in my mind that they were absolutely convinced that I had either killed Liz or that I knew what had happened to her. And in my mind, I'm also thinking what would lead them to believe this. But, you know, what happened is over the course of being questioned by the police, I realized that some of the things that I had told them I had done and said were being contradicted by other people. So, for example, and this is just one of many examples, but when I went to speak to Liz's mother on the night that she went missing, I told her flat out, I just saw Liz's car parked in the valley two hours ago. I said, and I just got back and it's not there anymore. And she didn't show up for class. Do you have any idea where she is? Well, her mother told the police that that conversation basically didn't happen. It also became obvious to me that virtually at the outset of the homicide squad being called in, um, they immediately seized on me as a suspect and they had spent the previous 48 hours leading up to that interview basically trying to corroborate everything that I had told the police up until that point. So in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I can account for where I was and when I was there. So I couldn't quite figure out what it was, but um, it was certainly uh, like obvious to me that they had taken a position that I was the person responsible and they uh, didn't seem particularly interested considering the possibility that I was. Robert says in this early stage of the investigation, there were no eyewitnesses. There was nothing that directly tied him to this case. The only thing he could think of that could have made him look bad was Elizabeth's diary. Yeah, and in particular, the last diary entry that she had made that her sister had found on Wednesday morning that, among other things, uh, suggested that she was very unhappy with the relationship she was unhappy with me. 
she said at various points that she wanted to kill me and she wanted to kill everybody that was bothering her. She wanted to kill herself, that she might have wanted just to disappear. So I think what happened is the police got hold of this diary entry. And I think not really thinking it through and realizing that what she was really doing was just venting. I mean, because this was five days before she gone missing. And in the intervening five days, you know, we had spent time together, other people had seen us together, told the police that things looked like fine. But I think it was a combination of the diary entry. You know, I can't deny the fact that I was in the geographic location where she went missing on the night she went missing. So, I mean, I've never really faulted the police that much for at least including me in the list of suspects. I think they would have been quite foolish not to. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. Robert Baltovich was arrested on November 19, 1990, exactly five months to the day after Elizabeth went missing. What had happened in that ensuing or preceding five months was that they basically just went around every single family member and friend I had and told them, you know, Rob did it. Now, there were a couple witnesses who came forward. One witness claimed that she had seen Liz sitting on a picnic table sometime between 5.30 and 6 o'clock on the night she went missing. Now, in her original statement to the police, she felt the person that Liz was sitting beside was a middle-aged white woman. Well, after that witness was... um, interviewed several times by police and hypnotized. That middle-aged white woman, you could say became me. I mean, she was shown a photo lineup and she said, I, I think I think it's Rob, but I can't be sure. So they had that witness, you know, but of course the problem was that at that time I was at home with my mother, my brother, and my sister-in-law. Another witness came forward and this is the witness that I presently think is really the key to the entire case. She came forward and said that on the night that Liz went missing, she saw Liz sitting in the passenger seat of her own car with an unknown male driver in the driver's seat. And they were parked just across the street from where the car had eventually been found. Okay. So that was pretty much all the police had in terms of quote-unquote eyewitness identification evidence up until early November when they went back to a witness who they had previously dismissed and whose sighting of Liz's car being driven two and a half days after she had gone missing had also been dismissed as a possible and this was about a week and a half before I was arrested he was shown a photo lineup and he said I think that guy that I saw driving the car presumably to get rid of Liz's body and so I was arrested about a week and a half after that. So that was the evidence that I think, by all accounts, uh, brought about my arrest. The uh, 
alleged identification of me driving Liz's car in the early hours of the morning on Friday, June 22nd, several hours before the car was actually found, parked across the street from where the other witness had claimed to have seen it. He was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. He spent eight years behind bars. He appealed and in 2004 was granted a new trial. On April 22nd, 2008, he was acquitted. I think by that time, even the Crown would, would admit that the case had deteriorated substantially. Uh, the witness who claimed to have seen Liz sitting on a picnic table, uh, she was ruled admissible because of her hypnosis. Um, but yeah, I, I, went, I went home, I think I went home early April on a Friday, just assuming that I was coming back on Monday and I was going to stand trial again. And um, I guess by the time the weekend was over, my lawyers told me that uh, the Crown prosecutors had decided that they weren't going to proceed and that they were going to ask the jury to acquit me and they were going to call no evidence. So that was pretty much it. And on April 22nd, I was acquitted. Robert was happy to be acquitted, but he admits a part of him also felt a bit cheated. There was a little part of me that thought, gee, you know, I mean, it, it would have been nice to have had a trial just so everybody could have seen everything that went wrong with the original trial and with the original investigation. And, and you know, obviously subsequent events have shown us that uh, there was quite a bit that did go wrong. Now, Rob, this, I mean, you can say this is behind you, but you, you're still, I guess, investigating, trying to find out or the person who did do this. Why do that? Why not just leave everything behind and say, you know what, I'm going to put it behind me and just move on? Well, I have to admit, um, for the first few years after I was acquitted, that was very much my intention. Uh, and I pretty much already assumed that even if we did, and by we, I mean myself and, and some other people that have been working on the case, try to kind of go back and reinvestigate the case, it probably wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is because we always felt that there were just too many unknowns. You know, Liz went missing on a Tuesday night. Her car wasn't found until the following Friday afternoon. Her body's never been found. So we don't know how she was killed, when she was killed, where she was killed, or at least that was my thinking. So for the most part, I just assumed, you know what? I'm never going to know what happened in this case. I'm just going to have to be satisfied with being acquitted. In 2013, five years after being acquitted, everything changed. Robert learned that some key information that would have helped his case had been hidden until the day he was acquitted. It turns out that just a few days after Robert was arrested, police met with forensic experts to discuss the possibility that Elizabeth's body had been outside of her car for two and a half days and then placed back in the car and driven outside of the city. This was the theory that the Crown had presented to the jury. But all those years ago, forensic experts had told police that this theory was scientifically impossible. So that was big news because suddenly, you know, we were able to put everything together. And, you know, by this time I had met up with two civilian investigators who just on their own were very interested in, you know, looking at the case. And we were able to kind of figure out, okay, you know what? We can, we can kind of pinpoint now when this crime 
would have been committed and it would have been on Tuesday night and everything would have been finished by the following Wednesday morning. It's a very complicated case and, you know, I mean, for, for, I mean, sometimes even I, I, can't, I, I can't even understand everything just because there's so many details, but basically that simplified everything because it showed that Liz had to have been killed on Tuesday night and the crime would have had to have been completed by Wednesday morning. So once that piece of information surfaced, okay, we're kind of able to go back and say, okay, well, we can forget about this, we can forget about that, we can forget about this. And it really wasn't until that one detail surfaced that I started to think, you know what, you know, maybe if we go back and look at this case again in detail, we can actually figure out what's going on. It certainly wasn't my intention, but, you know, once we got into the thick of it and, you know, started to realize what we're looking at it, it kind of became almost like an obsession for me because in the back of my mind i always thought you know i don't want to live the rest of my life not knowing what actually happened i don't know if you can talk about this but you you think you've figured it out right we do uh and i say we just because i've been working with two other individuals but i'll just confine my comments to me yes i do now part of that is because you know i i said earlier that there are really only three witnesses who factored heavily in the case in terms of either seeing Liz or claiming to have seen me on the night she went missing. There was a witness by the name of Marianne Purse who claimed to have seen Liz sitting on a picnic table with a man that she believed was me. There was another witness who the police we now know initially believed who claimed to have seen Liz, as I said, in the passenger seat of her own car with an unknown male in the driver's seat, you know, parked about two minutes away from the valley where I had seen her car earlier that night and two minutes away from where she lived. And another witness who claimed to have seen me driving Liz's car several days after she'd gone missing, presumably to dispose of her body. Well, of course, the scientific evidence that my civil lawyers found in 2013 were able to completely discredit that sighting, that claim sighting of me driving her car. So that was out. The key for us and the key for me is that we believe, and I believe, the witness who saw Liz sitting in the passenger seat of her car on the night she went missing, sometime around 8.30, was correct. Okay, and we now have very solid evidence that the police also believe that sighting was correct. But there was a problem, and the problem is is that at 8.30 on the night that Liz went missing, okay, I was accounted for. And at least five other people would have been able to testify you know, that I was accounted for and that I could not have been in the car with Liz at that time. So really what it boiled down to was, who was in the car with Liz on the night she went missing at 8.30 in the driver's seat? And whoever that person is either killed her or knows exactly what happened. So who is that person? Here's Toronto Police Detective Steve Smith again answering the question, did police look at any other suspects other than Rob Boltovich? Well, I imagine there, there was a large number of suspects. There always is in any of these cases. Uh, you know, we've, we've realized from the Jessup case, uh, we realized early on from the Kaufman report in the 80s that uh, you can't have tunnel vision. You can't just tunnel in on one suspect and 
and determine that they're responsible for this. You have to follow the evidence to to find out who is actually the person responsible because sometimes the person that seems most likely or seems most reasonable had nothing to do with this. So you follow the evidence and it leads you to the suspect that's responsible for these, these heinous events. Police did have their eyes on another person, someone well-known for committing sexual assaults in the Scarborough area around that time. Toronto Police Detective Brad Hoover of the Sex Crimes Unit interviewed Paul Bernardo on June 7th, 2007. He asked him, did you kill Elizabeth Bain? His long-winded answer to a simple question made headlines. Here's part of it. Well, it's a loaded question. I mean, are we going to go back and, 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 and go through the, the time sequence of what happened in my life? I mean, I, I could just give a yes or no answer, but, you know, there's a lot of issues about that. Right. You know, the, anyways, the answer to that is, is no, but... The 800-pound gorilla in the room is, that's a life 25 sentence, you know. It really comes down to credibility. Right. And, and not only credibility, but then again, timeline. I mean, between what Carlos and my roles were, respectively, and this and that. The answer is no to that question. Okay. Um, did you have anything to do with her disappearance? No. So now it's been over 30 years. Has there been a recent development in this case? We have received some tips in regards to um, where her body may be located, which we investigated thoroughly. Um, we've used a number of different investigative techniques. Um, unfortunately, we still haven't uh, been able to find Ms. Bain's body. And as I said, that would be one of the, uh, the biggest breaks we could get in this case if anyone happens to know, because uh, we'd hope that there, even though it's been so many years um, and the remains would probably be skeletal, we would hope that there would still be some sort of DNA attached to Ms. Bain's body that would uh, would give us a break in this case. Now, besides finding the body, what what else is going to help crack this case? Because what if you can't find the body? <laughs> well, you know, Phil, we've talked about this before, and the two things that we think that, that break cold cases open are changes in science and changes in relationships. Um, right now, we don't have any scientific ability to to do anything further with this case um, unless we we find Miss Bain's body and then the scientific techniques can come into play. So what we're hoping for in this case is that there's been a change in relationship with some people that were involved in this case, whether witnesses or uh, people that were made aware of what happened that night and that they're maybe living a different life. They aren't involved with the people that maybe have provided them with this information. And um, they hear about this case and they come forward and give us some information in regards to what they've been told and as to who, who's responsible for this. Elizabeth Bain's killer remains at large, but police say someone knows something. And one day they are confident this decades-old case will be solved. Rob Baltovich is hoping he can help with that. You know, it's been a long process. Um, I have to say I was quite surprised and happy to find out that the police actually were interested in, in looking at this case with fresh eyes. Uh, it's something that, to be honest, I, I never really thought would happen, but it, it seems like um, they have now uh, determined that this is an open case. Um, and so that's what we're going to do. And we're going to, uh, I mean, we've done a lot more than just that. I mean, uh, I, along with my colleagues, we've gone through the transcript and uh, we've identified 
have some other evidence that we think uh, certainly points in the direction uh, that we uh, think this case and this investigation needs to go. So that's basically where we are right now. Uh, I'm not going to say I'm super optimistic, but I am optimistic. Uh, I think it's a solvable case. Yeah, I don't really think it's that complicated case. I think it was made complicated by the fact that the police got the wrong suspect. Um, but I think that once you look at the evidence and once you take into account what we know now as opposed to what the police believe they knew at the time was missing, you know, I, I think it's very solvable. And as for Robert's relationship with Elizabeth's family now, Robert says it hasn't really changed since he was acquitted and he's not sure if he'll ever try to make amends. Yeah, there's no reason, I, I think, to believe at this point that, um, you know, they would really, really welcome that. I mean, I think that publicly made statements and suggest that they still believe I'm the person responsible. Certainly since my acquittal um, through indirect means, uh, we've tried to communicate with them. In fact, we've even tried to ask them questions that might shed light on uh, the investigation. And for reasons that I can't quite explain it, it seems like, um, seems like they've moved on. Um, a lot more than I have, uh, which I find a little bit odd, but I guess maybe, you know, they just want to kind of be left to themselves. But uh, yeah, I mean, at this point, I, I'm not really optimistic that uh, I'm ever going to have any type of relationship uh, with his family. After everything Robert has been through, he's not giving up on trying to find answers. I mean, for me, the truth always matters. You know, like even if, like, Let's say in a perfect world, we were to find Liz's body, or at least her remain, some piece of evidence attached to her body that could incontrovertibly clear me. Uh, I would still want to know who did it. I would still want to know what happened that night. I mean, that's just the type of person I am. So yeah, part of it is clearing my name, but part of me is also just wanting to see the case solved and wanting to see this person, the person I believe is responsible for it all, brought to justice. If you have any information about the Elizabeth Bain case, you are urged to contact Toronto Police's Cold Case Unit. If you want to give your tip anonymously, you can contact Crime Stoppers. If you know something, say something. You have been listening to Tracking a Killer, The Cold Case Files. I'm Madison Fitzpatrick. And I'm Phil Martino. Thanks for listening. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.